My name is John Bell. I'm a band director at Germantown High School in Germantown, Wisconsin. John Bell has been making this show a big part of his work. He says he wanted something more for his students. Something to help bring the kids together more than making music. I'm listening to the podcast each week and thought, this best part of your week is a great idea. So I, I borrowed it. John started playing our Best Things segment for his band classes. And he'd ask his students to share the best parts of their weeks as well. College acceptance letters, getting driver's license, good test scores, siblings coming home from college to visit. They get to know each other better than just coming to class each day and performing concerts together. It's a, a more personal connection that they didn't have before. Public radio is more than just the news. It helps you celebrate the good stuff in life, too. And like John Bell said, it helps build stronger communities in high school band halls and across the world. Support this work. To get started with your donation to an NPR member station, visit donate.npr.org slash Sam. Or just text the word Sam to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link where you can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org slash SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. This lifelong band nerd thanks you. Hello. Hey. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I didn't have the headphones on. It's okay. My guest today is a lifelong Midwesterner. I am in Iowa City right now talking to you. Liz Lenz is that guest. She's a journalist who lives and works in Iowa, and she's out with a new book that in large part tries to clear up a lot of misconceptions we all have about states like Iowa and the Midwest in general. It becomes a place where we just like project on it and write over it, and it never is allowed, I think, to be full and complete in and of itself. But Liz's book is also about a lot more than the struggle to define the Midwest. It's about Liz's own personal struggles from the last few years. Well, um, <clears throat> right after the election, I divorced my husband and left my church and wrote a book about it. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute. In this episode, Liz, Lenz, and I get really personal. Liz's book is called Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. just came out this past summer. In the book, Liz clears up misconceptions about middle America and faith, but she also tells the very interesting story of her marriage falling apart. At one point, Liz and her husband started a church together. And just a few years later, he was voting for Donald Trump, she was voting for Hillary Clinton, and they got divorced. In this interview, Liz and I talk about that, as well as how insular Christianity can be, how it can bring people together while at the same time shutting people out. It's a good one. All right. Enjoy. So this church that you all start to kind of bridge the divide, to, to, to meld yes. your more liberal theology with his more conservative, it fails. Oh, so miserably it failed. Um, we had, it, it was us and uh, three other families, and we'd come together, and there were just like a series of these crises and um, the pastor as leaders of religious communities tend to be like had this very forceful personality and would, you know, barrel around and do things um, that we hadn't agreed to or that 
I hadn't agreed to, um, you know, as I later found out. And then I had two children while this was all happening and so kind of took myself out of the space um, of decision making, you know, because I like I was just like crying on couches because I was so exhausted. Mm. And then um, when I kind of was trying to come back into you know, the decision making, because there were things that I saw that I didn't like. Um, I was told you don't belong here because the decision makers are men. And that was something that was very clearly and specifically told to me. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Like, I've yeah. been here since day one. And I've always been loud. Yeah. Well, there's <laughs> so. this scene in the book where you're describing basically the very fact that you asked questions in one of these churches led to a reprimand. Yes. Just you asking a question about something. Yes. Well, and as a I, woman. And the and the really sad part is is like that growing up in a very small conservative world, I'm used to that. I'm mm. used to um, you know, asking a question and being told you don't have to know, you just have to have faith. Mm. And then having, you know, and these are authorities uh, walking away from me and I'm a mm-hmm. pers- person who asks a lot of questions. I do it mm-hmm. now professionally, but I didn't come here by accident. This is what I do. And you know, I always thought that that was a problem. And so it was only like as an adult where I realized, oh, I'm not the problem. The questions aren't the problem. The space is the problem. And it needs, and I don't have to be here. I don't have to be in a place where my body and my life are always the problem. I can leave. It's a declaration that you can leave. And it's okay to leave. It's okay to leave. It's okay to be divided. And we often talk about like leaving as the easy way out. And I think, you know, I. Sometimes leaving is harder. Leaving, I think, is harder. I have a chapter on um, people who are queer and feel alienated from churches. You know, they grow up in middle America and these are their churches and these are their places. And having tried so long to make it work, finally just leaving and hearing those stories, it, it's it's really hard to say that leaving was the easy mm. way out because when you leave, you're not just leaving a church building you it's your family. your family and you don't know what is out there you don't know often what all is you've out known there. is that church um the i i recently got the opportunity to talk with megan phelps roper mm-hmm. um her book is unfollow and she's the granddaughter of fred phelps who founded westboro baptist church and she mm. articulates this so perfectly like you're raised in this little small world and why Christianity works like this, you know, where you're taught that like everybody on the outside is bad, only the people on the inside are good, and that to have the courage to step outside of that, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't know how your life is going to be, and you don't know who will be there for you because, you know, these are all the people who've like made you food and, you know, been, been your whole world. Yeah. So one of the big themes in the book is that no one really gets Midwesterners, specifically Christian and evangelical Midwesterners. What do you think is the biggest misconception folks have about that group of people from the outside looking in? Um, I think it's not that necessarily it's misconceptions, because some of those conceptions are correct, you know, the yeah. 
deeply conservative, majority white. There is a lot of corn out there. There is. And there's so much corn, (laughs) although soy is our number one export, Uh, Sam. Good to know. Um, (laughs) But just that it's a more complex and nuanced picture that, you know, you can have uh, this like... uh, a, a very big church in town uh, where the pastor is deeply, deeply conservative and, you know, really, really kind of walks the line of keeping his, you know, 501c3 and promotes a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, politics from the pulpit. And then you can talk to the people in the pulpit who can. Comp- don't agree with him at all, you know, are deeply committed to social justice issues. So there's a huge, I think, scratching the surface, you know, there's a huge pew pulpit divide. And that happens, too, in in these, you know, like little Lutheran churches in the rural areas where you have, you know, these very like, um, and and they hate these terms, liberal and conservative. But, you know, you, you have a very progressive female minister and she has to lead a congregation of deeply conservative farmers. So just that the tensions when you just scratch the surface are more are complicated. The most interesting places that I found was this church um, on the border of Iowa and Minnesota in Bigelow, Minnesota, where, you know, every Sunday the population of the town the doubles because mm. this church fills up with five different church services that happen in four different languages. This is a picture of a church that I think would astound most people's conception of, of what a place like Minnesota is. Yes. And 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 I think but even in that, you know, I I went there expecting this kind of perfect quote unquote melting pot, mm. right? Yeah, five languages. Karen, Lao, English, Vietnamese, and Spanish. Didn't even know Karen was a language. And yet, it's not all perfect. You know, talking to the pastor, you know, he has some, like, really regressive ideas about, you know, immigrants and... In a church full of Asian Americans. Yeah, and he's the one who opened up the doors. You know, he's he's the one who's, like, since he's been turned 60, he's been learning every single one of those languages. He's... making this space open and accessible and yet he will preach a sermon about the evils of you know pagan idols you know yeah it's it's complicated well and like this is what i love that you unpack in your writing around the book before the book and in the book this idea of bubbles there's no such thing as a bubble there's Mm -hmm. no such thing as a liberal bubble or a conservative bubble there are people with complications and different types of people everywhere you go so to assume that a place like iowa or minnesota only has one type of person that is actually wrong in this language we have around a liberal bubble or a conservative bubble that is not the way most communities work no, especially not most close communities mm. here. And I think you t- asked earlier, like, misconceptions people have about faith in the Midwest. And I think another misconception people have is that it is, like, only, like, this white evangelical thing. Yeah, You know, I, there are so many incredible movements happening in faith right now that are very progressive. Um, I talk about the Mystic Soul Conference that happens in Chicago, you know, um, which is this beautiful, incredible space for people of color and queer people and, um, and, and designed around them. So there, there's so much happening, but because the dominant narrative is, like, why evangelicals at it again, mm-hmm. hating on abortion, you know, you miss, you miss out that. on, yeah, the complexity and nuance on the page. Time for a break. When we come back, Liz tells me more about the hardest part of writing her book. 
the time she spent at a training for Baptist ministers in rural Illinois. BRB. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rothy's. Rothy's are the perfect gift for the woman in your life who is always on the go and loves a good balance of fashion and function. Rothy's are carefully crafted shoes made from repurposed plastic water bottles. They're stylish, available in a wide array of colors and patterns, and fully machine washable. Best of all, they're comfortable and have zero break-in period. Plus, enjoy free shipping, free returns, and free exchanges. Check out their seasonal styles at R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash minute. Billie Eilish, Lil Nas X, and Lizzo dominated the year in music, but there was a lot more from 2019 that you might have forgotten. I'm Robin Hilton. Join NPR Music all this month as we look back at the defining artists, trends, and milestones from the past year. Listen to new episodes each week on NPR's All Songs Considered. What was the hardest chapter of the book to write? I mean, the whole thing has these vignettes of you exploring faith and its complications in middle America. Which part of that research and writing was hardest for you? Um, the hardest part of the research was going and spending the week with the Baptist ministers in uh, rural Illinois. What kind of Baptist ministers? Uh, well, all sorts, but they, they hailed mostly from the Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay. There's this class that's taught for um, different seminaries, um, but the group I was with was mostly from Dallas. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a woman from Denver. It's to teach them how to be rural ministers because the majority of people graduating in, uh, from seminary and co- going to calls, as some groups call it, or just getting jobs as ministers, end up in rural areas. They don't all end up in mega churches and you know mm-hmm. in Nashville. Yeah. So what and so what happens is y- you have these um, you have these divides. You know, you get a pastor from Dallas going out to be in a small town in Nebraska. He's got to like fit in. <laughs> yeah, he's got to fit in, which is weird, you know, because it's like, well, one conservative white man goes to hang out with oh, a different no. kind of conservative white there man. There are layers and multitudes. Nope. There's life is complicated. Yeah, yeah. So I was really excited to go and just like learn. And I would say it was the most fruitful. I was given so many books and resources for this class, which I read. I love homework. I'm a homework fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and But going there was a time of like personal crisis, just to put it all in context. Yeah. The day I came home from that week was the day I asked for my divorce. Wow. Um, so it was like, it was a huge uh, personal crisis week, which which coincided with this week where I was with ministers and things got tense. Why um, were they tense? Uh, you know, I was <laughs> I was at it again, Sam. I was asking questions. <laughs> oh, there you um, go. <laughs> <laughs> because again, I don't want to make it sound one thing like not like oh, everybody was so ignorant. It was deeply helpful and deeply resourced and very, very intelligent and a smart look at like, what does it mean to be in a rural space in a rural economy? And we got out into the field and like talk to people and talk to farmers and dairy farmers and um, and all this kind of stuff. But also there were a lot of like cultural things being said that I was pushing back on with my questions saying, okay, how do you source that? 
you know, like the, the one guy, I put this in the book, but he's like, he's like, some people just think of the Jeffersonian idea of American and other people think of the Hamilton idea of American and Jeffersonian's rural and that's better. And the Hamilton idea of America is like urban and that's worse. And, wow. you know, just like that. And it's a moral judgment mm-hmm. on what means rural and what means urban. Mm-hmm. And so... I kept asking questions, and one of the questions I kept asking was, could you teach this class in reverse? You know, could you teach rural people then how to be a minister in... In an urban um, area. In an urban area. And that question caused so many problems, more than I anticipated. Huh. I expected them to just be like, oh, yeah, sure. Why they not? said, no, you can't do that? Um, In the end, one of the ministers... This is kind of funny because it happened after the book so in the book one of the ministers in the end finally concedes yeah sure like you can but the most misunderstood people in america are the rural people and that's why we would never do this in reverse you know kind of a thing but when i sent parts of the chapter for fact checking Mm -hmm. that same guy tried to say he never said that Wow. He was like, no, we would never do And I was like, no, no, you. I have, I, it was recorded. Like, I have a recording. Here's the transcript. You said it, so. I want to get back to a point you made a little earlier, talking about those Dallas ministers learning how to talk to the rules. Um, <laughs> you asked them if it could go both ways. Yes. If the same way that you have to teach folks to outreach to rural could be taught to rural folks to outreach to urban folk. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think of this thing you've talked about before, how some of these phrases that feel good to us and sound good to us are actually one-way streets. This idea even of bridging the divide, which is used to imply that we should get over our differences. You say that it's really only one way. When, When people say bridge the divide, they are asking usually people of color or Mm -hmm. liberals or Mm -hmm. women to try to explain themselves to conservatives or white men well uh, and to bend their perspectives you have to, to give fit up some. in those yes. spaces right like you have to give up who you are to fit into the norm and the quote-unquote norm is defined by white cisgendered male yeah. norms well, because like, like no one says oh if we're going to bridge the divide between trans people and people mm-hmm. who aren't trans you know the non-trans folks have to give up something or or, or, or meet halfway. It's always like, what is this marginalized group going to give up to assimilate? Exactly. And what do you, yes, exactly. What do you have to do yourself so that you can fit into this space? Not about how the space can learn to fit you. Mm. And I think that is, and we're talking about that big broadly, but that is mirrored very, like, in this, like, really intense way in America's churches that are resisting, some of them um, are resisting changing their space to fit other people and and yet they you know they have this language of like openness but the reality of the space is that if you want to fit in you got to give something up and if you don't give something up well then get out what what i what also was really interesting in your writing in this book and outside of the book was that in spite of you know some of these some of these conservative and evangelical churches in middle America are holding on to their traditions. There's also a crisis of church in middle America. You have written about how every day another church closes its doors and the loss of a church, particularly in a rural area, 
that can tear at the social fabric. So as much as we can critique, you know, the problems of some of these churches, they also provide certain kind of community services. And when they go, it might not always be good. Well, not just community services, but like a narrative continuity. Mm. You know, usually um, when these small towns started, churches were one of the first places after a school that was built, Mm. you know, and it's not just about Jesus, you know, (laughs) it's, it's about like, it's a community center. Yeah, it's a community center. It's about deaths and births and life and celebration and sadness and grief, all of those places center around um, church in so many places. And when you lose that, what do you lose as a people? What do you lose as a person? Um, You know, I'm a person who still does go to church, so I'm not coming at this as like, burn it all down. This is all the worst. I'm coming at this as a person who understands the value of community, specifically community that encourages you to grow and be a better person. Yeah. And we're talking about, in 2016, we talked a lot about like the anger of the white man, the grief of the white man, the how middle America felt like it wasn't being heard. And and I think they're being heard fine. But like the, but like what's at the root of the loss and the nostalgia is a specific loss of place, a loss of schools, a loss of churches. And, you know, it's a loss that I've experienced myself. And I know how, like, how hard it is. Um, There was, there, God, the worst part about me is how much I read Milan Kundera. And I know some people would say, no, there's many worse things about you, to which I would say fair. But this is, but I think a lot about um, the book of laughter and forgetting when he's talking about the cruelty of circles Mm -hmm. and that the cruelest thing about a circle is that if somebody leaves it, the other people just close hands and like Mm. keep going. Keep going. And and so like there's the beauty of the circle is the unity, but the cruelty of the circle is that when somebody drops away, the circle They're just forgotten. closes up. Yeah. And I think that that's church, right? That's, there's beauty in community and voice and singing and having that connection to spirit. And I don't know where else we do that in America, but it's also really cruel when when you're forced out. All right, one more break. Up next, seeing the divisions in our country today. Liz offers some suggestions on how all these competing factions of Americans right now can maybe talk past some of our divides over politics and region and class. More with author Liz Lenz after the break. Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from Green from Amex. A little pep talk goes a long way. Whether it's over a big old plate of comfort food or a comfortable drive out of town with your besties, Green from Amex can help cheer you on with three times points on restaurants and travel, including car rentals. It's built around your lifestyle so you can keep doing you with an extra boost of confidence. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Green from Amex. Terms apply. Hey there, Anjali Sastry here. I produce It's Been a Minute. Thanks so much for listening to our show. If you love what you're hearing, just another reminder to support this work. Just visit donate.npr.org SAM or text the word SAM to the number 49648. We'll send you a text message with a link. You can find your local station and make your contribution. Message and data rates may apply. You can visit npr.org SMS terms for privacy and text message terms. So easy. Okay, back to the show. 
One of the big themes in the book, and you've already gotten at this, is that some of the divisions that exist in the country, that exist in faith communities, they're so big right now and so intractable. You can't say things like bridge the divide. You have to accept that we might not get past those differences just by being nice. And if that is the case, particularly going into an election year, what is the way forward seeing those divisions? I think we all have to understand our complicity. I think we all need to have a moment of honesty where we sit and say, you know, we don't just like, you know, look at our Trump supporting relatives. And by we and me, I mean me, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and say, you did this. You wrecked America. I'm great because I voted for Barack Obama, you know, like and Hillary. And so I'm better than you. I think that that misses the point entirely. It misses the way that we have gerrymandered, the way that we have um, done voter suppression. It misses the way we've even divided our school districts. Yeah. It misses the way that a lot of the of folks in the in middle America who voted for Trump also voted for Obama. <laughs> right. Like those voters are complicated too. Yes. And so to just say like you did this, goodbye, you know, now we're going to it, it just it misses our own complicity in creating an America where this could happen. And so what, you know, instead of just like the the hand holding and the coming together, which is not possible, but like uh, like maybe like more of a historical and understanding of like who we are as Americans. There's this narrative in America in my book I pushed back against that like oh there used to be a time when everybody went to church and that was so great oh, that was the 1960s and that was specifically designed by Dwight Eisenhower mm. to like help us like up our economy to fight the communists and like it's not like pioneers were going to church often yeah. you know like it, it's this kind of like false idea so I guess perhaps more of an understanding of what divides us and an honest accounting of it there's more than just two sides life is complicated there are many sides and i think this i the solution is not an easy you know band-aid on the protruding bone of the broken leg of america Mm. it's you know it's noticing where the break is why it broke in the first place Mm -hmm. and then treating it in the serious way that it needs to be treated yeah so one of the things i kept wondering Devouring your book, reading other things as you've written, and thinking about the ideas in the book. You are someone who has spent many years now parsing and digging into the problems with faith in America right now. Mm-hmm. And yet, if I understand correctly, you never stop believing. I have always, and I think I probably will always, believe in something bigger than myself. Um, I don't... N- always know what that is mm. um but i i and you know it might be foolish it might be wrong it might be like something encoded in my dna that i you know like from ancestors for survival like um but i do think it's part of the human experience to seek something bigger than yourself to yeah. believe in mystery and whether and and we all want to access that so whether you're doing it through science whether mm-hmm. you're doing it through journalism or you're yoga doing it through whatever yoga poetry yeah. music that we all seek something outside of ourselves and for me this space still makes sense i mean sam three years from now i might be balls to the wall wiccan it's fine <laughs> 
phrase I've never heard before is balls to the walls, Wiccan. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, that's the only way to describe oh, yeah. Wiccans, I think. Yeah, they are. They are in it. In it to win it. Um, <laughs> With the harvest moon, but yes. I, but I, I, yes, I, I still believe in something bigger than myself, and I kind of hope to always because I think that it keeps me from being a self-centered jerk. Uh. Um, that's what I need personally. Yeah. not everybody needs it. Not everybody yeah. needs it. Yeah. Um, but I like it. You know, for me, it's like I stopped going to church years ago for many reasons, mm-hmm. but I, I also never stopped like believing in God. Yeah. And people have asked me before, well, why not, or or, or why still? Yeah. And it's like God means the most to me in moments when I feel really alone. Yes. Because the idea of God is that you're not actually ever really alone. Yes. And I can't imagine a reality in which those moments in which I feel most alone, no one's there with me. And so just for that alone, this idea that you aren't alone, it's worth it. There's that... um, Not to quote scripture, but I'm oh, going to quote scripture. I love scripture. a good scripture quote. You know, there's that that verse. I can't remember the specifics, but it's like you know the, the when you pray, like your heart cries out with, you know, groanings that like only the angels can understand. Um, and, and I think about that all the time. Mm. Like right when you said, you know, like in your loneliest moments, and we are people of words, and that sometimes you know you lie there or sit there, and you're like, I'm very lonely. And I think about that, and like my heart is just crying out to something bigger than myself. And there's this assumption that that bigger thing hears you. Yes, and that's beautiful. And that's enough. It's beautiful. And it's, it's enough. enough sometimes. It's enough. It's like singing, right? It's yes. like I'm going to sing the song in my car or wherever, and at. And and that there's something hearing that, and that's what makes it beautiful, mm. the act and the receiving of that. Exactly. I really enjoyed this conversation. I loved it, Sam. Thank you so much. Yes, yes. Liz Lenz, the book is called Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America. Thanks again to Liz Lenz. I really, really enjoyed that chat. Listeners, want to hear from you as well. Did you ever have a big New Year's resolution fail? If so, what did you learn from it? Uh, We want to hear your crazy, wacky, insane New Year's resolution stories. Record your story on your phone. Send that voice file to me via email at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. No resolution is too crazy. Tell us all about it. You might hear yourself on the show in the new year. All right, listeners, that's a wrap for now. We're back on Friday with uh, news and stuff from the week. Till then, thanks for listening. Talk soon.